Well, if you have your Bible with you, I would uh, like you to turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and also you might want to keep your hymnal handy and turn to page 924. Welcome to those of you who are visiting in the evening. We are studying together uh, the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's our hope that uh, we might, in God's uh, timing and providence, uh, be able to nominate and elect uh, some men to elders and deacons. And it's important that we, as a, a church, who are voting, but also for those that are nominated, to know the standards that we hold to. This is a requirement, not for general membership, but it is a requirement for office bearers that we be able to uh, uphold the Westminster Standards as our confession. So tonight we're going to uh, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and then I'll have us turn to the 8th chapter, where we're dealing here again with of Christ the Mediator. We already dealt with section uh, 1, and so let's uh, pray, and then we'll read the scripture and then the catechism, or confession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word, for we know, Lord, that the word is above all and that uh, our standards are subordinate to your scripture. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd speak through the scriptures. And yet we thank you, Lord, that you also have in the scriptures told us that you give some to be teachers. And we thank you that not all the teachers are in our generation. And uh, we pray that as we uh, study uh, with the, those teachers of old, uh, we'd be instructed in the Scriptures. We've asked this for Christ's sake. Amen. First John chapter 5 and verse 20, just a single verse here. <clears throat> and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. And then, if you'll look in the confession with me, we'll start reading at the second paragraph, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, page 924, section number 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, <clears throat> being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet, this is important, without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man? Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Section 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united with, excuse me, to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, 
to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Number four, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead, with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal Spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. And we, uh, we will uh, read one more and then stop for tonight. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday, today, the same, and forever. Amen. Now, uh, tonight, there's a lot there, uh, and we're not going to cover it all, but, um, but I do want to talk a little bit, draw our attention to the uh, coming of Christ as one who is God and man, and then also his sufferings. So if you look at the uh, second section here, we see that Jesus uh, is the Son of God. He is called the second person of the Trinity, boys and girls. And you'll note that the language of being very and eternal God, and uh, the language very God of very God and very man of very man uh, come from this, and also our catechisms as well. So he is fully God. He comes into the world as a man. So he doesn't diminish his deity at all, but rather he adds to his full uh, deity, our humanity, in every regard except one. And that is, he was never a sinner. He was conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and thus he did not inherit the sin nature as those of us who come into this world by ordinary propagation. So he is without sin, and uh, we see so that there are two whole, perfect, distinct natures. The Godhead and the manhood were joined together in this one person. And then there's this language here without conversion, composition, or confusion. Now, what does that mean? It means that there, there was nothing mixed. That is, when, when the two natures came together inseparably in one person in Jesus, there was no diminishment 
of the divine nature in Christ, nor was the human nature elevated in any way that made him kind of like a, a demigod uh, or superhuman. He, he was truly human and truly God. And, and that these two things were never mixed in any way. There was no confusion in, in these two natures, though they were brought together inseparably. And that means even into eternity future, Christ will always be both God and man. You think about that. From eternity past, Christ has always been the eternal Son. But with the incarnation, he takes on a human nature and is God and man in eternity future. And that's quite remarkable when you think about uh, that he has taken on our likeness forever. C.S. Lewis once said, imagine being a shepherd, uh, but having to become a sheep, boys and girls, in order to bring about salvation uh, for the sheep. That's a, a, just a small analogy of what Christ has done for us. And then in the third section, it says that the Lord Jesus in his human nature, uh, united to the divine, was sanctified. So his human nature was uh, without any corruption. He was anointed with the Spirit. As we said, we talked about that this morning, that the Spirit of the Lord was on Christ as he ministered publicly, as he preached. And remember how I said, I have an advantage, though, uh, in that the Spirit has been poured out on you. Uh, and, and it's not just the prophet who has the Spirit, but the, the, now that the church and the minister are given the Spirit. Uh, so that was accomplished by the uh, ascension of Jesus in, in, into heaven and that the Spirit would be given. But getting back here to the confession here, it says that the Father, excuse me, that it pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell to that end. And then it says that he's taking the language of Hebrews here. Christ is holy, harmless, undefiled, full of grace and truth that he might be able to furnish the office of mediator. So that Christ is the only person who can bridge this gap between sinful man and a holy and righteous God. Only one who is both God, can represent God to man, and truly man, can represent man to the Father perfectly, only can be found in Christ. So was the incarnation necessary for salvation? Yes, indeed, uh, it, it was. And then, in section 4, it talks about the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we were happened to be talking about this in the high school uh, Sunday school class uh, this morning, about the humiliation of Christ. So once Christ comes into this world, conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he begins his state of suffering. And this was something that would carry with Jesus throughout his life, privately, but also publicly in his ministry. And it begins with the incarnation, <clears throat> with the suffering of Christ begins with him actually becoming a man. Um, look at, if you look at 2 Corinthians in your Bible, <clears throat> chapter 8, this is an important verse here, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 <clears throat> and verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Now that's not saying, that boys and girls, that Jesus had a lot of money. What does that mean, that though he was rich? It means though he was 
the eternal Son of God in glory in heaven. Yet what did he do? He left heaven and came into this sin-cursed world. Yet though he was rich, says Paul, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That is that we might go and be with the Lord. How was that accomplished? It was accomplished by the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at Isaiah chapter 53, famous chapter that you probably need to know from the Old Testament. It's about the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, in verse 10, there's a, really that whole chapter is about Christ and the suffering servant. And I just want to show you a few verses. In uh, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. That's to crush Christ, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So that was speaking about the mission of Christ. Christ had to suffer. Christ had to be crushed. And then in verse 11, it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And I find that very encouraging, that as deeply as Jesus underwent the desolation and the curse of God on the cross, yet what is the promise? That the soul of Christ will be satisfied. He will receive his reward. What is the reward? That all his people will be saved. An innumerable host of people are going to know Jesus Christ and be with the Lord in the new heavens, in the new earth. We will be raised from the dead. We will be like Christ. Uh, the earth and uh, the whole creation that now is groaning and laboring, uh, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God will be finally delivered in that day. And it says, My servant will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities, speaking about the work on the cross. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. So after his suffering and his humiliation, Christ will experience exaltation. If you uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, we see how Jesus uh, enters more deeply into his sufferings in Gethsemane. Now, the, 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 grave, the greatest part of Jesus' suffering was on the cross. Um, some, including Mormons, try to argue that it was here in Gethsemane. Now, I do think Christ went deeper into his desolation in the garden, but that still uh, is not really the nadir of his sufferings. The nadir of the sufferings is, is on the cross when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in Matthew 27, uh, verse 46, uh, sorry, that's the, hold on, that's not Gethsemane. Chapter 26, sorry, chapter 26, and look with me at verse 37. And he took, Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you. And then, of course, you know, he goes back, he finds them asleep, and then he goes and he prays in verse 42 a second time, 
saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he goes back, they're sleeping still. He goes back and he prays a third time. And, and then the betrayer is at hand. But in Luke chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, but Luke tells us that it was said of Jesus, he being in agony. He had to be comforted by an angel in Gethsemane. In John chapter 12, in verse 27, Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And then, of course, then in Matthew 27, verse 46, he cries, My God, my God, uh, why hast thou forsaken? Now, he was not forsaken in his divine nature. Um, he was not forsaken by the love of the Father. That was immutable. Um, he was not forsaken by the Holy Spirit. But there was a forsaking of the light and the love and the help and the comfort of God as he suffered in the place of sinners. And so in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, we are told that Jesus had to be made unto sin or like unto sin for us. So if you can imagine, boys and girls, all the sins of all of God's people of all ages and centuries piled on in a huge cosmic heap upon the head and shoulders of Christ and Father, His Father pouring out the wrath and judgment, the equivalent of hell on His Son as He bears those sins for us. That is the very nadir point of of his sufferings there. It was for this purpose that Jesus came into the world. Um, we need to remember as you, that Christ came into the world not primarily to be a good teacher or some kind of philosopher or moral example. He came to be a substitute on the cross for sinners. So God withdrew all his favor and grace and light. God gave full indignation Instead, to his son, forsaking um, him and, and rejecting and casting uh, him as one who is the worst of all sinners. Everlasting destruction was laid upon Christ. Uh, the terribleness that we are told of in Hebrews 10, 31, of falling into the hands of the living God was given over to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what caused Christ to tremble in Gethsemane. Um, knowing the terror that awaited him in his human nature. He also, even as he endured the, the weight of the sin and the judgment of God, Christ also, on top of that, was experiencing the full force of satanic attack, we're told. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 53, that Satan also was piling on, even as people passed by, wagging their heads, saying, if you be the Son of God, come down and we'll worship you. Uh, and, and those kinds of things. So the humiliation began at the beginning of his life. We see, and it continued to the very end of his life. Uh, we see in childhood that uh, they sought to slew, slew the baby Jesus. And so they flee as a family into Egypt. We see how the devil stirred up men against Christ. Stirred up the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the rulers. Uh, against Christ. Uh, we are told that Jesus had no place to lay his head, uh, even though animals like foxes and birds had places that they could go in the middle of the night. Christ had no 
home of his own. Uh, even the very miracles that Jesus performed sometimes brought accusations uh, that he was doing this by way of uh, the devil, that he was using demonic power to do this. We see how men tried to trap him in theological error. We see how men tried to throw him off the cliff. Other times they took up stones as intending to stone him, but he was slipped through the crowd. We see how Christ suffered false witnesses against him. He was struck in the mouth before Caiaphas. Uh, he was condemned. He was mocked. He was dressed up in a purple robe and mocked as they bowed down and said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was spat upon. He was hit in the face. He went to Pilate's judgment hall. There he was falsely accused. He had to go before Herod um, as well. He was led in the streets. He was brought back to Pilate. Um, he was put on par with a murderer. A murderer was released. While he was condemned, he was scourged. Uh, they put a crown of thorns on his head. He bore the cross. He was, his hands, his feet were nailed to the cross. He was condemned. He, lifted up, uh, he was lifted up between earth and heaven. They, they put him between two thieves. He was ridiculed. And even the sun hid itself at noon uh, from Christ on that cross. <clears throat> Outer darkness fell upon <clears throat> the scene. Uh, some kind of miraculous darkness descended uh, all about them. Uh, so that he, actually all the talking stopped. Um, people were mocking and, and such before. But then once that happens for the final three hours, there's no record of anybody speaking in the Gospels. The light of the sun being removed. He died while experiencing the wrath of God. Um, his body was pierced with a spear. And, and this, this was all done to accomplish our salvation. There was also humiliation in, in our confession notes here, not only in his passive obedience, but in his active obedience. Christ suffered for us. He subjected himself to the law of God. You know, he is the king. He's the lawgiver. And yet, what does he do? He brings himself as a man under that law. He was born under the law so that he had to fulfill the moral law, the ceremonial law, the judicial law in word, thought, deed, and, and, and did so uh, perfectly unto God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, uh, we are told that through one man's obedience, through the one act of obedience of Jesus Christ for his whole life, many shall be made righteous. Through one man's obedience, Romans 5.19, many shall be made righteous. And then what, why is that important? Well, the reason that that's important, boys and girls, is because that righteous obedience of Jesus is your righteousness. That's the righteousness that you have when you stand before God. It's not because you were a Presbyterian and you went to Sunday school and you tried to be a good boy or girl. We stand before God based on the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. That's our righteousness. That's my righteousness as a pastor. I don't want to stand before God and say, well, you, you know, it's because I was a minister. Uh, I want to stand before the Lord in something that is secure. And, and only the righteousness of Jesus Christ will, will gain the acceptance that is necessary. And that is given to us even now in 
um, in, by way of imputation. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is so important, uh, actively and passively, because that obedience of Jesus is our righteousness by which we stand. When you believe in Christ, that righteousness is transferred to you. That is who you are in Christ. You are righteous, though you still are daily struggling with sin. You are righteous in the sight of God by faith. That's why faith alone is the only instrument. It cannot be a combination of faith plus works. It must be faith alone because it is Christ alone and because it's Christ's righteousness alone which is given to us as our righteousness here. Now let me make some applications here uh, for us uh, with uh, the remaining time that we have. I think I have 10, but I'm going to go through them relatively quickly. (laughs) First of all, Christ's suffering is worthy of our meditation. I think we will love Jesus more and we all hate sin more when we think more on his humiliation. And that is discussed in this chapter here. Um, What gives us more steadfast courage, comfort, and peace other than thinking on the ministry of Christ for his people? And that includes the suffering on our behalf. Number two. Um, the sufferings of Jesus show the nature of sin and the the heinousness of sin. The nature of sin is better demonstrated and the odiousness, the uh, abominableness of it, the filthiness of it, the hatefulness of it is shown by how much it took the Son of God to suffer in order to deal with it. When you see that, you will not put trust in yourself to get you out. Why is it that certain people had saving faith in the Gospels? I think the answer is because they saw no other hope for them. Why is it that the bleeding woman can get healed? Because she realizes, I've I've exhausted every other attempt at trying to get better, and I'm not better, I'm worse for it. My only hope is this man. Why is it the Syrophoenician woman goes away justified? Is because she knows that only Jesus Christ can deliver that child that is demon-possessed. We see it uh, with the, the, the Roman centurion who wants the servant healed but realizes he's not worthy to have Christ in his home. And just say the word and he'll, he'll believe it's because I think the reason is what we see is that they, these incidences where people are uh, delivered, that your faith has made you well, is because they had faith in nothing else or no one else. They had no hope of anything other than Jesus Christ. And I think studying the sufferings of Christ helps us get to that point. You know, you've got the story of the Pharisee praying in the temple, and he doesn't go home justified. Why? Because the Bible says he trusted in himself. He thanked God. Now, he's religious, but he's not justified. He goes to church, but he's not justified. He goes to the prayer meeting, but he's not justified because in the prayer meeting, what's he doing? He's thanking God for what? What he's done for God. I thank you, God. He, He believes in grace, too. You know, he believes in grace. He believes that by the grace of God, 
Um, he could be worse. But he thanks God that he's not like others. He doesn't see that really he's, um, his real condition is that his only hope is in Christ. He thinks, no, I can get myself out of this through my tithing, my fasting, my prayers, you know, etc. Here, it, It's the man who sees that none of that is going to avail himself anything. It says, God have mercy on me, a sinner that is going home justified. So the sufferings of Christ help us to see um, the holiness of God and the awfulness of sin. Um, and, and that leads to my third point, that, that it shows us God's holiness better. Uh, when we study the sufferings of Christ, we, we get salvation on God's terms and not on our own. Number four, we see here the infinity and the unsearchableness of God's love. God's love and mercy, wisdom and power are infinite, and they are found in the work of Christ alone. That love which the Father has for you is the love of what? He has for his own Son, because he loves you in the Son. It's because you're united to the Son that you are loved with such a love. Number five. This will help, the sufferings of Christ will give you more assurance. The study of Christ's suffering gives us more assurance. It, it eliminates the possibility of meriting salvation ourselves. The only way to God is through Christ and what Jesus has done. Number six, you will have more peace of conscience and free access to the Father. More peace of conscience and free access to the Father. As you consider the sufferings of Christ, it was the death of Jesus. What happened at the very moment Jesus dies? At the very moment that the sufferings um, come to their climax in the cross. The veil is torn, isn't it? And what, what does that signify? It signifies two things. One, the Spirit of God would be poured out, but also that He gave you, through the blood of Christ on that cross, free access to the mercy seat. Seven, it'll give you better perspective on your own suffering in this world. Uh, we are told that our suffering is a light affliction, but for a moment. That's not to minimize our suffering, but it is to make much of the glory that awaits us comparatively here. So our sufferings, I think, can be seen in their proper perspective in the light of Christ's own suffering. The sufferings of Christ, number eight, will help you die to the world and to sin. Romans chapter six, verse four, we are told that we are buried with Christ by baptism into death. That is, being united to Jesus Christ, what happens? The old man is buried and we come forth as new people in Christ Jesus. It enables us to turn our back against our former ways. Number nine, it will help you with the burden of guilt. Some of you may struggle with what Martin Lloyd-Jones called that one past sin or that one sin that just haunts you in your past. When you see the sufferings of Jesus Christ, um, that will help you, I think, deal with the, the weight of those sins that grieve you the most. 
that that sin too is gone. It's not like all the lesser sins are covered, but the one grievous sin that, that shames you is always still there in front of you. That sin also is under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And then finally, it will... Um, it is a help. The sufferings of Christ will be a help for unconverted people uh, as well. Uh, that God can do a great work in your heart uh, because he has gone to such length uh, in the incarnation, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. If he has gone to such length, he will in no way cast out somebody who sincerely wants to come to him. Uh, and so you have this encouragement to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for our lesson tonight from the Word and from the standards. And pray, uh, Lord, that this would help fortify us in our understanding, but also, Lord, in our Christian living. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. We're going to sing number 243 as we close tonight, 243, and let's stand together.